Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lord Voldemort, part one. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? Will the real weird sisters please stand up? We're gonna have a problem here. We're the weird sisters, we're the real weird sisters. All you other weird sisters are fine, but not the victors. Will the real weird sisters please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. Hi, and welcome to the real weird sisters. I'm Martha. And I'm Alice. And today we're here to talk about Lord Voldemort, or as I like to say, uh, he who must not be named. Isn't that a really funny joke that I've been working on this week? <laughs> I also like to say, uh, Lord, what's it? <laughs> Lord Thing. Oh, well, you know who I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I think maybe one thing we could do this episode is a ranking of all the names that people call Voldemort, uh, because we have you know who, we have he who must not be named, we have the Dark Lord, we have Lord Thing. Um, we have Lord Thingy, because uh, yeah, Lord Thing is what Fudge calls him in the fifth book, and then Lord Thingy, I think, is what v- Vernon calls him. And we also have, yeah, um, the, the uh, well, you know who I'm talking about. That's what Fudge calls him again in the fifth book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there are quite a few different names for him. Um, yeah, Tom Riddle, you got to get that one in there too, Martha. Mm, that's probably the worst one. <laughs> or as Voldemort, or as uh, Dumbledore likes to call him, just Tom. Or Harry. Um, you were foolish to come here tonight, Tom. The best part is when Harry calls him Tom. <laughs> um, it's really like, get him, Harry. Put him in his place, Harry. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, before we get started really diving deep into Mr. Riddle here, um, we do have some housekeeping to take care of. Um, first of all, we just finished a record-breaking month of the podcast, and this past month of July was we broke all records. We threw all rules out the window, and we actually released... 10 episodes actually 11 if you count our patron cast um, um in the span of 31 days so pretty that's impressive cool. that's crazy yeah it, i actually was thinking that the patron cast was the 10th one so i'm i'm shocked to find out that we actually did 11 episodes that that is pretty crazy yeah it is pretty crazy i um not really sure how we did it, but um, for those who maybe aren't following us on social media um, or haven't uh, been paying attention totally or just only check your podcast feeds on Monday, you'll see that um, we had two episodes drop last week. The first one was an interview with Oak Reed, who was my former professor um, and a clinical psychology doctoral candidate, um, and he in the podcast talked about his research on um, how transphobia develops and how it can be combated. So that was a super interesting interview um, that was released earlier last week. 
And then the second interview um, that we had was with um, Letal Ruderman, who is a therapist, um, mental health therapist, and she um, talked about themes of mental health in the Harry Potter series. Um, so focusing on trauma, depression, and grief specifically. So both episodes were super interesting. We both uh, learned a lot in the episodes. Um, we were definitely not the experts in either of those two. So we definitely, uh, it was fun to kind of be students for a little bit in those two episodes. Yeah, it was. And both of them were very, very interesting, like you said. And I think um, people will really appreciate them during this this time period, especially. Yes. So make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast in case you missed those episodes. Um, definitely check them both out. Uh, they were very interesting um, guests and topics to talk about. So um, I think that's it for housekeeping, except for just a reminder, we are now on Real or We are on Instagram now, Real Weird Sisters Pod. Last uh, book club... Or, last character study episode last week was when we announced this and we gained about like 70 followers in one week that's not the best I kind of feel like real weird sisters fans could step it up a little bit I don't know what do you think Alice I mean it was better than the 12 that you predicted but yeah I agree not I how mean, many come I on. predicted did I predict you were 12 like, I said we were at like 100 at the time I said we're around 100 and then you were like and, and next week we'll probably be back and we'll say and we're at 112. <laughs> that was a pretty good joke that I did. Um, I was not too far from the truth. But um, yeah, no, I think we could get more followers still. So uh, hop on over to Instagram and follow us at Real Weird Sisters Pod. We did not post the meme that we were that we promised, but it'll come. It'll come with time. <laughs> That's true. All good things come to those who wait. By the exactly. way, I don't know why for all this time when we've been doing these housekeeping segments, we haven't said housekeeping. <laughs> I'll come back later then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I know why we haven't been doing that. That's because that scene is awful. Well, that scene is not also canon, so... Uh, no kidding, it's not. <laughs> Housekeeping. I'll come back later then. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, I believe that is it for our housekeeping. Um, and we can move on because um, it's time to come back later then. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so with these character studies, this is going to be kind of a different format, I think, because we're talking about Voldemort this week, and he is a different breed, you know, uh, he's not really, there's, all the characters we've talked about so far have been either, like, protagonists, heroes, or, like, we've talked about Snape and Malfoy, but, like, mostly, like, you know, they're, in the first couple books, they're mostly just, like, fun antagonists. Uh, Voldemort's definitely a different um, case here. Yeah, it, he definitely, first of all, he's, in the first three books, he's not even uh, in human form. So he's kind of just, like, this entity that they talk about. And Harry does come face-to-face -face with him in the, literally, the, to his face, and that's it, um, in the in the first book. But, like... He's not actually really a big player in the first three books. I guess if you're thinking about Tom Riddle, he is. But it, it's just so different than most of these other characters because most of the other characters, you know, if they're in the first few books, 
there's plenty of content to talk about for them. But for, for Voldemort, it really is kind of like a slow start for somebody who is like the biggest villain of the series. Well, I mean, you said he doesn't have a body. He is mere shadow. Shadow and vapor! Is how he describes himself. So all the other characters we've talked about so far have at least had a body, like you said, whereas this one we're going to be talking about is mere shadow and vapor. Exactly. Um. And, I mean, along with that, I feel like he's not quite as complex in the first few books. Uh, He gets a lot more complex as he goes. Uh, Maybe, again, because he's just shadow and vapor and that's it hard to be a complex character when you're me a shadow and vapor uh but yeah so i think in the first three books we're going to talk about voldemort in the first four books today because in the first three he's just not really i mean he's mentioned a lot obviously and then he has like a scene where he's present in the first two books and then he's really not in the third book at all um other than just mentions and then, of course, the fourth book, he is very prominent. So our, our discussion today is mostly going to focus on Goblet of Fire. But, of course, we'll touch on um, his his role in the first three books as well. So getting started, Voldemort is one of the first characters that we hear about in The Boy Who Lived chapter. Um, in After the Vernon scene, we have the conversation with McGonagall and Dumbledore. And part of the reason that McGonagall is on Privet Drive is that she has heard the rumor that Voldemort has been destroyed or that Voldemort is, is gone. Um, and she wants to know, she wants to get the, the rumors confirmed whether or not Voldemort has really gone. So um, we get that confirmation very early in the book and he's not mentioned by name. It's all you know who until Dumbledore specifically lines out why he says the name um so that's all set up right away in the first chapter of the book yeah it's honestly it's very interesting to see how Voldemort is such a big factor from the very beginning of the series um even though he's I he's not always the main villain especially like you said in the third book um but he's definitely always referenced and he's always kind of in the background and I think one of the things that really stands out to me in the first book is how it's very clear right from the beginning that that um, you know if you if you have any sort of like literary experience, you're gonna know that at some point Voldemort will be back and he's going to be um, it's going to be a big deal when he finally comes back because there's so much foreshadowing to that. Definitely a lot of foreshadowing and all the characters that we're like set up to trust, you know, Hagrid, Dumbledore, McGonagall are the ones who are saying he's not dead, really. Like Hagrid says that he thinks that Voldemort's still out there, but has lost his powers. And Dumbledore says that he doesn't know, you know, nobody can know for sure where he is. Um, But basically it's it seemed Dumbledore confirms that at least he's gone for now. And again, like we said, he it's established that he refuses to call him anything but his name, Voldemort. Um, although his, if, if uh, Dumbledore was really playing by his own rules, he would call him Tom. Right. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that he doesn't just always call him Tom right from the beginning. I feel like he likes to call him Tom like to his face, but then I guess, I guess I, it's weird how it's not really common knowledge of who Voldemort is. Um, or who, where Voldemort came from, or who he used to be uh, before yeah. he became Lord Voldemort. I completely agree, and I think we've talked about this before, but it's strange to me that, like, Dumbledore's whole narrative is fear of a name only increases fear of the thing itself, but he does, 
he has the actual information of the real name of Lord Voldemort and he doesn't want to share that, I guess. I mean, maybe he talks about it with people and people don't care, but like Hagrid never talks about him as Tom Riddle, even though he went to school with him. And I almost feel like Hagrid doesn't even know that that's Tom Riddle. Although I can't see why he wouldn't know that, but <laughs> right. I'm but just... it totally does seem like that. Like <laughs> yes. whenever Hagrid talks about it, it's like, even when he, when Hagrid tells Harry about him, and he like wants to he Harry's like you could write it down, and and Hagrid's like can't can't spell it. Um, but I mean, you'd think that that Hagrid would maybe give the backstory to Harry of like, well, I could tell you at least he used to be named Tom Riddle. Right. Yeah. I just don't know. I mean, it it just feels inconsistent with Dumbledore's whole narrative of making sure that everybody is aware of things or like not hushing things up. Um, I almost feel like it might be the reason is that this was not something that the author had totally broken down the details on until the second book, um, which is kind of surprising because I feel like a lot of the things she sets up from the beginning are, are set up like way in advance, whereas this is just from the second book. But I almost feel like the Tom Riddle backstory wasn't really there um, in the first book. I think it could also be explained by the fact that it's it comes as a huge reveal at the end of the se- at the end of the second book because if we did know his name was Tom Riddle, that wouldn't have worked as well. Um, so I think it might be for that purpose and not necessarily that it wasn't thought out ahead of time. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So um, I think you might be right. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting in this co- this first conversation with McGonagall and Dumbledore, the two big things that I think are set up are that Dumbledore refuses to call him you-know-who, and then also McGonagall establishes that she actually does say Voldemort, but she says, you're the only one you-know-who. Oh, all right, Voldemort was frightened of. Um, and it uh, it also, Dumbledore says that Voldemort had powers he never knew, and, and McGonagall says, well, you're too noble. So it, it almost does foreshadow the Horcruxes, even though I don't know if that was something that was totally outlined this early. Right, it might not be those powers, but just thinking like, okay, he has done things, you know, magically that that Dumbledore, you know, ethically has resisted doing. Right. Um, so, yeah, I agree. There's a lot that's just set up in just a few uh, paragraphs there. It's really crazy to see how much we kind of learn about Voldemort uh, just in that short amount of time. And, and the fact that we also learn a lot about Dumbledore through that um, and sort of their relationship, I guess, uh, it, it all gets established very quickly. And and then we get kind of hit over the head with all of these plots uh, throughout the whole series. Like, how often do we hear that Dumbledore was the only one that Voldemort ever right. feared? And how right. often do we hear Dumbledore uh, or somebody quoting Dumbledore saying that, you know, fear of a name thing? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with how much those things get repeated. You're right. They happen a lot. But um yeah, I think that this first conversation sets so much up. Um, moving on to our next mention of Voldemort in the first book is when we have the Keeper of the Keys chapter with Hagrid explaining things to Harry. And it's interesting in this conversation that Hagrid has with Harry, like you said, he's afraid to say the name and he can't write it down because he can't spell it. Um, but he gets really emotional just thinking about all the people that were killed by Voldemort because he kind of describes Voldemort's rise to power and how scary it was. And he lists out, obviously, the Potters. And then he also says the McKinnons, the Bones, and the Pruitts. Um, who the, the Pruitts are the ones that we get to know the most because those are actually, that's actually Molly Weasley's family. Um, but um, we have mentions of the McKinnons and the Bones as well um, later on in the series. But it's interesting to see Hagrid get 
he actually has to blow his nose and stop telling the story because he's he's getting so um, emotional thinking about back to those times. Yeah, and I mean, then we can, again, this is setting up a lot, like, as far as for the reader just to know that how serious the previous war was and to know just how evil Voldemort really was. Um, So it is it is very interesting. Right. Um, And then the really important other thing in this uh, scene is when Hagrid says, um, and I actually have, like, always, I never really for some reason I had a different memory of this scene than um, is actually the case. Hagrid says like, some people think he's dead. Codswallop, in my opinion, like we get, we, everybody remembers that quote. And then I had always in my mind, like remembered it being Hagrid who thinks that he's out there biding his time. But actually Hagrid says that he doesn't think that that's right either. And what he really thinks is that Voldemort's still out there, but it's lost his powers. So it's actually almost like, I mean, it's a combination of him losing his powers and he is out there biding his time. So I feel like it's kind of, it's yeah, kind of weird how Hagrid kind of like, dismisses that idea. I think maybe what Hagrid means is that, like, I guess some people think that Voldemort just flew into hiding. Like um, a calculated decision. Kind of, like, willingly, you know, right. like, okay, this is time for me to just, like, step back for a minute and, like, I'll come back at some point later. But I guess, yeah, it's it's a little bit different than that and that obviously it wasn't a choice. It was sort of forced on him and then it takes him a long time to be able to regain his powers. Right. Yeah. So um, that's, I mean, it's interesting in this conversation with Hagrid that Hagrid tells Harry, obviously that people are too afraid to say the name, but Harry right away does not have a problem saying Voldemort. And obviously he didn't grow up with people who were afraid to say the name. Um, But that's a very key, important part of Harry's relationship with Voldemort too. And kind of Harry's relationship with everybody, I feel like is almost uh, influenced by Harry's um, gutsy decision to always refer to Voldemort by his name. Yeah, it's really, it's really, um, I think powerful that Harry did not grow up in the wizarding world because then he automatically, like he doesn't come in with the same level of fear of Voldemort that other people do. Um, and so he is able to kind of, I don't know, it's a little bit, I guess it's maybe, I don't know if we want to say like more abstract to Harry or just like, he's less like attached to it in the moment, even though it did affect his life very personally, but he didn't know about it until now. So um, it is, I think that's one of the things that Harry ends up kind of having over Voldemort is that he hasn't just grown up living in terror of Voldemort. Yeah, I think that's that's totally right that um, Harry, even though he's been touched more personally by Voldemort than almost anybody else, or his generation at least, um, he didn't grow up with that fear. So that does give him some power in the um, relationship with Voldemort. Um, but I, I think it is interesting, like, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, like, the whole, like, deciding to call Voldemort by his name is lauded so much. And it's really like the reader is supposed to come away thinking that this is such a brave decision. Um, and part of me wonders now, like, if that word, I'm not in favor of censorship most of the time, but if that's a word that, like, really incites fear in people, I don't know. I kind of wonder whether it might be insensitive for Harry to call Voldemort by his name all the time. Well, I think I can see both sides of this because I can see what you're saying for sure. Um, But I do feel like in this situation, it's like 
there that is increasing the fear by never naming him um, and never just addressing the fact that he's a human. I think it kind of gives him some extra power and kind of like inflates him into this like larger than life figure, uh, which is exactly what he wanted. So I kind of feel mm-hmm. like, and then I think Voldemort really enjoys the fact that people are even af- so afraid of him that they're afraid to say his name. So I kind of agree that it, it's almost like a, a reclaiming of the, of the word. Like you can't, you can't just like tell us what to call you or not. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. That's that's a good way of looking at it because it's not like I don't know if it was Death Eaters kids who started calling Voldemort by his name and they were right. using it to like bully people or something. That'd be one thing, but it's the the people who were hurt by Voldemort who are calling him that. So Exactly. That's think, like yeah. That would be disturbing if they were the only ones who said it that way. Like that you're right. That would not be a good usage of it. But no. I think with Harry being the one to reclaim the name then I think it's okay. And I also, I mean, it's not a slur directed at right. someone. Like I think with, you know, the word mudblood, I don't think that Harry should go around saying that to reclaim it since he's not, doesn't identify that way. <laughs> right. You know? So like maybe if Hermione wanted to, she could. And she um, does. Yeah. Exactly. So I, we kind of can look at it that way, but I think with the word Voldemort, that's literally just this guy's name. And I think it's, it's, it's doing more harm that they're not saying it um, because right. it's it's inflating him up, like I said, into like sort of a supernatural type being. Yeah. So I think that the like I, I just worry that the quote of fear of a name only increases fear of a thing itself like could be used in a way that's not how it's used in the series. So, I mean, hopefully people are moving away from using Harry Potter analogies for everything in the real world. But um, I could just could see that being fuel for somebody's fire that's not not actually oh totally yeah and i actually i actually think i have seen it that way Um, yeah exactly and i i don't agree with the idea that we should i i think that there are certain words that you should not say um because they they are too um they have too much history attached to them and they're too uh hurtful yeah too hurtful and too uh coming from such horrible places so i definitely agree with that i just think this is a different situation than that I think that's a good point. Um, so after those two initial conversations, obviously we have a couple like introductions of Harry whenever he meets somebody. Um, they have to make a big deal about him being the boy who lived and stuff. One of the funniest moments or most memorable is when Fred and George um, are talking to Mrs. Weasley on the on the train platform and they're like, I wonder if he remembers what you know who looked like. <laughs> Just like, okay, <laughs> Fred and George, why did you want to know that exactly? <laughs> well, I can kind of... I can totally get it. Like, that's very realistic behavior for 13-year-old boys. Like, the level of sensitivity there is is pretty low. Um, to, And as Mrs. Weasley is just, like, horrified, like, I forbid you to ask him. Like, <laughs> I'm kind of glad that she does. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, like, Harry wouldn't have been offended, you know, and he wasn't offended. Right. He was just uh, like, and I don't remember it. <laughs> right. But, like, I can totally just imagine, like, these kids, like, they don't necessarily realize why that could be, like, kind of an insensitive or triggering thing to ask someone. Um, But, and then, like, again, because they've grown up with so much lore surrounding Voldemort, I think that they're just, like, super curious. And it is weird that they don't seem to, there's not, like, photos of him out there, you know? Yeah, well... The only photo shoot that we know that Voldemort did was um, in the fifth year um, in the train station. 
he's wearing that suit. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just, it's strange that he never let himself be photographed before that moment. Is he like self-conscious or something? Like, poor Voldemort? I just think it's more of a matter of like anyone, any photographer would be afraid to um, work for him. He's not the basilisk. Like, you could take his photo. I'm surprised he didn't like kidnap someone from the Daily Prophet to do a photo shoot of him for free. Well, maybe he'd be like Peter Parker and like take photos of himself. <laughs> I think Voldemort's probably a pretty big selfie king. I or yeah, maybe not selfies. Well, I mean, depends on your definition of selfie because some people think that selfie means uh, just a photo of yourself. But I don't think he'd be a front-facing camera king necessarily. Uh, but I could definitely see him like <laughs> being all about working the angles of like p- placing his phone in a good spot for self timer and that kind of thing. Okay, so what do you not consider a selfie? A photo, you have you have to be holding the phone and taking it with your arm, or taking it with your own hand for it to be a selfie. So what if a self-timer photo is not a selfie? If no, it is. I just feel it, like if you took the photo of yourself, then it counts no. as a selfie. If you took the photo of yourself using the front-facing camera, then it's a selfie. So if you did a self-timer and you put it across the room? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that could still be a selfie, but only if you use the front-facing camera, and I don't think that many people use the front-facing camera for that type of photo. Mm, very interesting. A lot of people... Well, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> people will, like, post a headshot that somebody else took of them and be like, selfie! It's like, that's not a selfie. I, somebody I else took the photo. Right, so that's what I was going to say. That's my definition of a selfie. My personal definition is you took the photo of yourself. It has to be obvious that you took the photo of yourself. I think that's what I think. Mm, Very interesting. It's like the definition of a selfie is you can tell that it was taken by yourself. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Okay. Um, (laughs) Anyway, anyway, um, so we're pretty much wrapping up on Voldemort in the first book. Uh, We uh, we talked about this at length last week, but we have this very strange scene in the Forbidden Forest uh, where Quirrell is crawling on his front legs and knees or whatever um, with so that Voldemort can drink out the back of his head uh, the unicorn's blood. Or he's crab walking with right. Voldemort's he could head be leading. crab walking or if the head is upside down he might be crawling with his head between his arms. <laughs> <laughs> it's very very strange to consider. Yes. Um, but we all know or either way Voldemort's not going to get the hiccups because he drinks upside down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the unicorn blood thing, as I think we talked about it fairly long for a fair amount of time last week, but it's just an interesting, like, I'm not really sure what that was doing for Voldemort um, when he was part of Quirrell's body or when he was possessing Quirrell's body. Um, was it giving Quirrell more strength or was it giving Voldemort more strength? Well, they're, I think they're sort of one and the same at that point. And you know what? I just occurred to me that maybe it was just Quirrell drinking the unicorn blood because that could still nourish Voldemort. Oh, that's what I was wondering, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I don't know. It, it, it very much confuses me to think about <laughs> that whole concept. But I think that, like, just Quirrell allowing Voldemort to inhabit his body uh, anything Quirrell does to make himself stronger sort of benefits Voldemort. That's sort of my theory. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so it could have been Quirrell drinking for sure. Um, that would actually make the most sense. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, when you th- anatomically speaking, definitely. Right, exactly. So because like um, we don't think that Voldemort, for example, has to eat a separate meal from Quirrell when they're sharing the same body. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because <laughs> that's actually how I started thinking about that. I was like, well, how is Voldemort eating? Like every time. Quirrell has to, like, smuggle extra food out of the dining hall. But then I realized, like, oh, no, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> well, he's mere smoke mere smoke and vapor. Or mere shadow and vapor. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. What? He's mere shadow and vapor! Oh, okay, okay. It makes more sense now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so... That scene, I think we can move on because the final scene in the first book that's obviously the most important for for Voldemort's role in the first book is The Man with Two Faces. Um, And I guess this is where we get a little bit of Voldemort's personality because we see, we hear the high voice speaking to Quirrell, like, use the boy, use the boy. (laughs) And then he lies. Oh, he lies. I have to say, like, his ability to to tell when people are lying is probably one of his most underestimated uh, but best skills. I mean, it's just legitimacy, right? Yeah, but it, it before it's explained to the reader, I, I just feel like it makes him so creepy. Yeah, I think that's kind of a trope in villains, um, like, for different fantasy stories and sci-fi stories as well where the the villain can tell when you're lying that is a really chilling thing um or chilling sensation i'm sure um yeah so i'm sure harry when he comes up with a really good lie of what he's seeing in the mirror of era said that i i'm shaking dumbledore's hand i've just i've just won won the the house cup (laughs) <laughs> now did he win the house cup or the quidditch cup uh, who knows um <laughs> i like how he has that vision like that's not even a thing that like why would he be shaking hands with dumbledore over that <laughs> well, Harry, harry's never seen what it looks like at the end of the year yet so that's maybe that's true. what he envisioned <laughs> well no wonder Voldemort could see through that lie i take it back it's not that impressive of a skill Voldemort's like, why would he be shaking hands with Dumbledore for winning the House Cup? <laughs> um, Voldemort's yeah. like, that's not what happens when you win the House Cup. Right. Um, yeah, so the, the face of Voldemort is described as the most terrible face Harry had ever seen. It was chalk white with glaring red eyes and slits for nostrils like a snake. Um, so pretty creepy it's interesting that the shadow and vapor is able able to take that form on somebody else's head (laughs) uh it's very interesting um again i I think this is the point where we sort of just have to suspend our disbelief right uh but as far as Voldemort's personality goes i do feel like in this scene we get more because he's not just the really good like telling when somebody's lying but also he's pretty sassy with Quirrell like when he he's like bossing him around and then he also makes up this story to Harry about how um the how Lillian James died begging Voldemort for mercy which is I mean I guess sort of true but the way he says it is not really accurate to what happened but it's interesting that he does reveal that Lily um, was died trying to protect Harry because I, I think he probably tells that to Harry because he assumes that Harry's not going to make this make a, make it out of this alive, um, but kind of a 
classic supervillain mistake here, revealing too much. Yeah, um, he definitely enjoys revealing certain information, and yeah, it doesn't always end up working out the way that he intended. Right, exactly. So, um, yeah, so in this scene, the last thing that really happens after after Voldemort reveals that to Harry um, is Quirrell's unable to touch Harry um, and we'll get that explanation um, at the end of the book, but Quirrell's not able to touch Harry. So Harry is able to escape. I do love Voldemort. Then kill him fool and be done. (laughs) I have to say like Wormtail really, like we talk a lot about all the abuse that Wormtail gets from Voldemort, um, but really Quirrell was, the first one that we've seen. So Wormtail is kind of like Quirrell 2.0. And... Yeah, Quirrell is the warm-up act for Voldemort. <laughs> exactly. Um, he treats him in a very similar manner. Yes. <laughs> Kill him, fool! <laughs> Kill him, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty much the end of this scene. The, the last thing that's going to be important is... Um, our conversation with Dumbledore at the end of the first book, um, we get the fear of a name quote officially, um, very important. Um, and then Dumbledore, or Harry asks Dumbledore why Voldemort wanted to kill him as a baby, and Vol- Dumbledore says he can't tell him that, but he does explain how Lily's love has protected Harry, and that's why Quirrell was unable, unable to touch him. Yes, and so obviously that does come into play quite a bit. Um, it's it's interesting because it ends up being something that Voldemort's able to conquer. Um, but I think it's it's kind of interesting that, like, I feel like in the first couple books, I, I remember thinking, like, well, Harry has, like, this superpower. Yes. Um, and, I mean, that's the power that the Dark Lord knows not is his um, protection from, from Lily. So Love? Yeah. That, that's the power? And <laughs> that's Harry, it? Like, feels so let down. <laughs> right. um, I um, mean, it, obviously, it ends up being kind of greater than that in the end it it turns out to be not just this physical skin protection thing but um yeah it feel it feels like that's going to be the superpower is the skin and on being unable to touch harry right well i mean it's pretty pretty cool power to be able to repel your enemies it's like your your enemies hands burn when they try to touch you (laughs) yeah exactly um, but yeah, that's the end of Voldemort's role in this first book. I, I think it's interesting in the first book and the first three books, really, where Voldemort really is more this just kind of mythical figure that's not really there. He's People are afraid of him, but he's not like an imminent threat, I guess. Um, and even at the end of this first book, even though we know now that he's not officially dead, even though we probably if you were reading pretty closely or not even that closely, you could tell that he's not dead. But at the end of this book, even it feels like, well, Harry took care of it. It's done. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't feel, it feels resolved. It does. And the other thing that it was always interesting to me was when they had all of the like deniers that Voldemort was back, I was always like, were they not paying attention during Harry's first year? Like, is this something that doesn't get, very publicized like I guess maybe honestly like I feel like that should have been in the papers yeah I think it probably wasn't because it's the Daily Prophet and the Daily Prophet doesn't know what they're talking about but yeah it's kind of interesting because at the end of I mean at the Hogwarts feast Dumbledore does not mention Voldemort at his speech so it's kind of weird like it's kind of weirdly hushed up um I guess it's not enough of a story it's a pretty big story I mean this is the first time Voldemort's been back uh, acting. He's back. <laughs> He's back. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, but Voldemort like has been quiet for 11 years and now, or t- almost 12 years, or no, 11 years. And now he's randomly just like back trying to inhabit people. Like you'd think that they would want to publicize that pretty widely. Like be aware Voldemort might try to possess you. Right. That definitely feels like it could have been something they could have publicized more that could have like maybe kept Voldemort more and more in hiding too. Although it, surprisingly Voldemort does just completely retreat for two years um, after this. So <laughs> that's also interesting. Well, do you think that maybe like maybe Dumbledore did try to like go public with this and Fudge hushed it up already and we just didn't get that story uh, because Harry wasn't aware of it? That could be. I mean, I think with our perspective of Harry as a 11 year old, like he's probably not seeing too much of the behind the scenes stuff. So I could see that happening. And it seems like something Fudge would have tried to hush up um, and it would make actually the stuff in the fifth book less like jarring, I guess, if that's been happening for years. I guess what's weird, though, is that like this serious thing is treated so seriously in the third book. No, so no pun intended there but um, <laughs> um how else would they treat it remusly well certainly not peterly <laughs> um but but no i i mean i think that it's interesting that they treat that issue with so much gravity and then like the quirrell thing is not even brought up so yeah i can kind of i mean i can kind of see why that's the case because it's like yeah, serious. like, what they know of him sounds pretty scary and stuff, but it, it seems a lot more, like, manageable than Voldemort, and it's a lot, he actually has a physical body, so you can actually see it, um, it's, it seems easier to explain to people, so I can kind of see why that would be one that they would be trying to tackle, I just do feel like a lot of times the government, like, governments will, like, or not even just governments, but, like, people in leadership will, like, really make a big spectacle out of like handling one problem correctly while there's like a much bigger problem going on that they're not even attacking at all. Yeah, I think that that's that's consistent with how the ministry treats things too. So (laughs) that's probably (laughs) probably pretty accurate. One other thing before we get to the second book is that it's possible too that Dumbledore really actually did not publicize it just because maybe to protect Harry's privacy, but I don't know. That's the other. Th- that's my other theory. I kind of doubt that. <laughs> I don't think that they would really be trying to protect Harry here. So that's that doesn't true. seem consistent. That's true. Um, okay, Dumbledore let's... has not normally put Harry above above the rest of that. Right. Okay, so let's move on to talking about Voldemort in Chamber of the Secrets. And what's interesting in this book is that he, his role is completely past Voldemort. It's not the current Voldemort, like we said, Voldemort goes into hiding for the next two years after the events of Sorcerer's Stone. So the role that Voldemort's playing in Chamber of Secrets is really the diary, um, Tom Riddle or the Horcrux. So he still plays a very active role, actually pretty much just, I would say, similar level of role that he plays in the first book, but it's not current Voldemort. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yes. And it's, it's kind of confusing, but the weird thing about it is that the memory of Tom Riddle does have current information. He's gotten it from Ginny. Um, So he knows who Harry is, even though obviously Tom Riddle at the time did not know who Harry was. Um, So he does know who Harry is and what Harry's role in um, defeating him is. Uh, But at the same time as that's going on, present day Voldemort does not know that this memory and Harry are interacting. 
Yeah, it's definitely confusing. And part of me, like, there's there's a couple things that I think we've talked about in our Chamber of Secrets book club episodes that I'm trying to remember, like, what we really decided. But I think part of it is he does say that Ginny really, like, gave him a ton of information about Harry. So it's possible there's there's a reading, a possible reading that Tom Riddle wasn't aware of Harry until Ginny told him about her or told her about told him about him. Um, that could be it it's just interesting that tom riddle the memory or the horcrux would develop such a strong urge to destroy harry um just based on little Ginny's stories yeah but i mean if if Ginny told him like maybe Ginny said like oh the boy who lived or something like that and then uh you know tom was like what what does that mean you know like kind of that probably immediately would kind of spark his interest because he's so obsessed with being immortal and that kind of thing right and then could be yeah. that like maybe he asked Ginny in one of their written conversations something like where is Lord Voldemort right now or like what what's happening with Lord Voldemort in your world or something like that or so and then she told him that story or something yeah yeah I, I don't find it too hard to believe I just because I think it also helps that we know that Ginny is sort of obsessed with Harry at this point more than sort of <laughs> Like, if this was just a random student, then I think it would be weird. Like, why would they bring up Harry? But with it being Ginny, it does make sense. Yeah, so I think that's probably the best um, possibility of why the the Horcrux riddle knows about Harry and knows about Voldemort's downfall and stuff, but real Voldemort doesn't know about the Horcrux. Um, We also know that um, the whenever a horcrux is destroyed Voldemort doesn't feel it it's not something that he's connected to um for subsequent horcruxes so that's consistent i guess um but yeah it's it's a little confusing um and it's also just interesting the whole backstory with Lucius Malfoy giving Ginny the the diary and what what Lucius really knew about what the diary was going to do and that's all a little bit like i guess there's a couple different theories of what he thought was going to happen yeah, so it says at some point that that Lucius knew, like he was told that this this book would cause the chamber to reopen, right? Um, right, but yeah, we don't know. He he doesn't seem to know that it's a Horcrux, and that's why he's just more likely to just throw it around and kind of right. give it to Ginny rather than like keeping it under his strong protection. The one the one confusing part is that Dobby, when he comes to give his warning to Harry, um, he has this really interesting coded uh, language where he says, Harry asks whether it has to do with Voldemort, and Dobby, not he who must not be named, sir. And Harry's <laughs> and Harry's like, he hasn't got a brother, has he? Um, because Dobby <laughs> later explains, like, I said that because it wasn't about Voldemort, it was about Tom Riddle. Like, cause he didn't know he yeah. didn't go by that name back then. So Dobby knew that this had to do with Tom Riddle. So Lucius must have known that to some extent, right? Well, right, cause how how else would Dobby have found right. out? Yeah, unless so, unless Dobby like was there. We don't know how old Dobby is, but I don't know. Like maybe he, Dobby knows that the Chamber of Secrets has to do with Tom Riddle or something. What if Dobby is like 180 years old or something? He definitely could be. I mean, I feel like Creature's probably at least that old. It's hard to say. I don't. I don't know. I, I always I, picture Dobby being about twenty-five. Like he's has such a young spirit. I think only twenty. I always picture him about forty. Yeah, it's weird to picture him being forty. <laughs> no, I just feel like he has such a youthful spirit. He's kind of like Peter Pan. 
So honestly, he could be like 15. <laughs> well, he could be like 50 too. <laughs> Peter Pan is really old, isn't he? You know, he could be like 75. He could be 180. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We have no idea how old Dobby is, but yeah, I, I, I just, even if he's old enough to have been around for the original Chamber of Secrets, I just don't know how he would know that the diary was connected. You know, how well, would he know all the, that backstory without Lucius saying something? Yeah, I mean, the diary does say it belongs to Tom Riddle. But it's just so weird that Dobby knew, like, this was going to happen when Lucius, like, just drops the diary into Ginny's cauldron at, at Flourish and Blots. Like, it doesn't seem like it's that calculated of a plan, but apparently he was just blabbing about it enough that Luc- that Dobby knew about it. Like, right. who was he talking to about it? Because Malfoy doesn't know, or Draco doesn't know. I, it must have just been Narcissa, and I'm sure that the Malfoys, you know with the way they view house elves, I'm sure they didn't think like, oh, it, it would be like how I would have any kind of conversation in front of my cats and not be concerned about it. You know what I mean? Like that's how they view Dobby. And that's obviously a downfall to them. Um, but I think that they just don't even consider the fact that he's present. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. Um, but yeah, it's just I'm surprised that Lucius would even be having that conversation with yeah. Narcissa. It doesn't seem like something Narcissa would be that excited about either. Maybe, like, another older Death Eater that's not locked up. Uh, I don't know who, but, it, you know, it could have been another Death Eater was over and and they were talking about it. Like, not? <laughs> Crab right. or Goyle. Or Crab or Goyle or, yeah. When, <laughs> on one of uh, Draco's play dates with little Vincent, um, <laughs> the dads had a little talk in the, in the den. And Dobby exactly. was serving them tea. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, so moving on to what we actually see of Tom Riddle, the first scene with him in the Chamber of Secrets is going to be, of course, this memory that Harry gets to go into of him turning Hagrid in. And we have talked about this at length, but what's interesting is the way that Tom Riddle sets up this memory is he basically frames it as like the reason that he turned Hagrid in in the first place was because he wanted to be able to stay at Hogwarts over the summer because he didn't want to go back to the orphanage. And uh, Professor Dippet tells him that because of all the attacks that have been going on, they can't make arrangements like that for Tom Riddle. So Tom says, like, well, if the attacks were to stop, if, if the culprit was caught, maybe would you be able to arrange that? So he really sets himself up to Harry as this very sympathetic, like, loving Hogwarts student, like, that, that doesn't want to go anywhere, doesn't want to live anywhere besides Hogwarts, because, of course, Harry can really empathize with that yeah and I mean it, it is something that he sets up but it's also obviously like a, it is something that they have in common just even without any sort of ulterior motive to convince Harry um, you know they that is something that Harry and Riddle have always had in common Right. Yeah. So I think that I mean Harry is very afraid in this book at the end of the book especially he it voices his fears to Dumbledore that he's too much like Riddle and that, that the two of them have too much in common and that he's afraid that, that Tom Riddle was, that he's going to become somebody like Tom Riddle, which is just so like, you know, sweet of Harry that he's worried about that because it's Well, not. yeah. And I think that, that 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 is such a important thing that Harry grapples with because I think that's what clearly, obviously his concern over that is what makes him very different from Tom Riddle. Just 
you know, the fact that he does not want to be like that. Um, I think it's interesting because I think both Harry and Tom see each other in each other. Um, but Harry is very worried about becoming like Tom Riddle. Uh, whereas Tom Riddle or Voldemort really like looks down on Harry, but at the same time, he kind of assumes that Harry's motives are as simple as his own. And so it ends up being a strength for Harry and a weakness for Voldemort, how similar they really actually could be. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think that they both think about it a lot and they think about it in different ways. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, so in the uh, memory scene that, that Riddle shows Harry, um, the other important detail is that Dumbledore makes a quick appearance and he does seem a little bit suspicious of Riddle, um, or at least he's not super um, trusting of Riddle the way that Dippet is. Um, so that's an important detail as well. Yeah, and again, like all this stuff in the moment, it doesn't necessarily feel super impactful, but when you kind of view it as in the whole of who Voldemort is, it it turns out to be very significant um, that Dumbledore has always sort of been suspicious of him. And when we find out that, that, that Tom Riddle is Voldemort, it all makes sense because you see why, where that idea that, that Tom Riddle was the, was always afraid of Voldemort. You see where that came from. Right. And it actually goes back even further. Of course, we'll find out in the Half-Blood Prince book, but goes back even further to the first time that Dumbledore met Riddle, which was, of course, at the orphanage. And uh, it's interesting to see, to read this scene um, in the memory of, of uh, Riddle seeing Dumbledore in his fifth year, seeing Dumbledore the way he talks to Riddle, knowing that this is probably influenced by Dumbledore's first impression of him. It's, it's interesting, too, because we're seeing this memory from R- Tom Riddle's perspective. So you would honestly think that maybe, like, he would sort of doctor it a little bit or like his perspective would not include the fact that he seemed that Dumbledore didn't totally buy into him. Um, so it's kind of interesting because yeah, I don't know. You'd almost think that he would kind of like make it seem like he kind of schooled Dumbledore. Yeah. I mean this, the moment with Dumbledore is not like, it's not like Dumbledore is like t- telling <laughs> he, he's really not that shady with Riddle or he's really not that like, I don't trust you. Like he just is kind of like a little bit I don't bit trust you, boy. <laughs> You'll go wrong. You'll boy. go wrong, mark- boy. Mark my words. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I mean it's this moment with Dumbledore is really like Dumbledore literally just says, like, best not to roam the corridors these days. But like that's pretty much it. So it's not like he's like, look sharp, Tom. <laughs> Constant vigilance, my boy. <laughs> <laughs> We're mixing up a couple different characters now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the last pretty, I mean, this this whole memory is just so ridiculous of like how Hagrid was the one to open the Chamber of Secrets, but Harry believes it. Well, I totally believed it the first time too, and I'm sure most people did. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> it's just, just like, just so like, sad to see Harry like come out of the diary and he's like it was Hagrid <laughs> I know I feel bad for Hagrid mostly actually I know like was he just is he just the type that everybody can just easily blame like uh, yes <laughs> I mean I guess it sort of fits that Hagrid would be like again because he kind of can sometimes make mistakes um, even though he has good intentions but it's like 
the idea that Hagrid would like be sicking a monster on the whole school and like accidentally killing someone that's a little bit much I know it's like this I could get it if it was like the monster was just like wreaking havoc on the building or something but like actually putting people's lives at risk that does not seem like that's too bad that people really have that assumption about Hagrid yeah honestly like okay this is for the Hagrid conversation more but like it honestly really does kind of if you look at Hagrid as being like um being different in that he's half giant then you can kind of start to see why people are like that's true very prejudiced against him that's true um yeah so moving on tom riddle obviously is the one who's been um possessing Ginny all year and we have the reveal in the chamber of secrets what's pretty hilarious is when harry like sees tom down in the chamber he's like you've got to help me tom (laughs) there's a basilisk is he not like weirded out that tom is there (laughs) clearly not (laughs) just strange but yeah he's uh he pretty much reveals his true colors pretty quickly and then there's the big reveal of uh tom marvel a riddle i am lord voldemort i do that is one of the best reveals in the whole series honestly I think it's really well done in the movie, too. I know that people um, complain about the Chamber of Secrets movie a lot. Um, to me, I think that movie is has a lot of really redeeming factors, and the scene with Tom Riddle in the Chamber is really, really memorable, and I think it's very well done. Yeah, totally. It's very chilling, um, and and that the, the way they did the Chamber in general is really good. And it helps that the actor for Tom Riddle is, like, perfectly cast, that Tom Riddle. Yeah. Not, the, not the one in half the prints. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's a really, I mean, it's almost, it's it's almost a turning point in the series. I mean, I know it's not the real Voldemort and I know it's not um, the, like, the, the Horcrux doesn't have that much bearing on like the actions of the present, I guess, at least for another couple of years for Harry. But I think it's, it's a big reveal to the reader finding out that Voldemort used to be a boy, like just like Harry, um, and that he had sort of some redeeming characteristics in some ways, or at least he was human. Um, so I think it's interesting to, to have that reveal. It does have a huge impact on the way the reader reads it, I think. Yeah, it definitely is a big part of who Voldemort is, is just to know his backstory and to know his, you know, that he was a student at Hogwarts and that Dumbledore was his teacher and everything. I think, yeah, that is, is a huge part of who Voldemort is. And it really helps to start to get to understand him beyond the fact that he's just shadow and vapor. Mere shadow and vapor. <laughs> and it's pretty much what, what the riddle is too, or the memory of riddle is the Horcrux riddle. Um, but yeah, it's this whole scene of Harry defeating the diary. I mean, I think this is also interesting because it's, more so than in the first year, I think Harry really does have to think on his feet, and it's pretty creative his um, decision to stab the basilisk or stab the diary with the basilisk fang. Um, you really do. I mean, we're not here to talk about Harry so much in this episode, but I do feel like this scene is very important to seeing Harry's like thinking under pressure, I guess. Right, and the idea that the sword is impregnated with basilisk venom. Right, exactly. Um, Hermione, you're brilliant. <laughs> uh, she's just actually highly logical. <laughs> With a basilisk fang. 
<laughs> it's um, a good thing yeah. they're traveling on the road with a whole store of basilisk fangs. Unless yeah. you've got unless you've got one of those in your bloody bag. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, it's also important at the end of Chamber of Secrets again we have a conversation with Dumbledore about Tom Riddle and about Voldemort and Dumbledore does share the theory with Harry that Voldemort transferred some of his own powers to you the night that he gave you that scar um, and that's kind of in reference to Harry being able to speak parcel tongue specifically but and Harry actually says you mean he put a bit of himself in me and that's like a very the the language of that is very similar to what a horcrux is so the clues were all there um if to readers who were looking for them i guess yeah honestly like because i wonder i wonder like the whole harry is a horcrux thing that feels like that could be that could be the piece that was added in later and i wonder if it was like you know rethinking how the series was written and thinking okay well maybe he did actually put a piece of himself uh in harry i mean yeah i think that that could be something because the the language of that is very like vague i guess even though it is consistent with how it's going to be described six years later um five years later for harry um but i think yeah it could be that this came that that Dumbledore just sort of sort of said that and the author looked back on what she had written and it was like, oh, that part is there. What what is that part that Voldemort put into him into Harry? Like, what does that really look like? Or how is that how is that going to impact who Harry is? So it could be one or the other, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, so that's pretty much it in the Chamber of Secrets for, for Voldemort. Um, we'll touch on really quick what Voldemort's like in Prisoner of Azkaban. He doesn't make a single appearance in this, in this book, um, unlike in the first two books. Um, the only, like, really important thing, obviously we have the whole Sirius being, like, a, a Death Eater. Like, that's what he's, uh, described as why he's, um so dangerous. But the biggest thing, I think, in the third book is Trelawney's prophecy that she makes that the, the Dark Lord's servant will return to the Dark Lord that night. Um, of course, that's Wormtail. So that prophecy is very important because it's, it's a very short thing, but it pretty much just says like that the Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever he was. Tonight, before <laughs> um, midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. <laughs> you there, Martha? I'm so sorry, dear boy. <laughs> the heat of the day, you know. I drifted off for a moment. Um, okay, so what's very interesting when you really look at it that way, or look at it this way, is that Prisoner of Azkaban really is a total anomaly from the rest of the series and that Voldemort is not the main antagonist. Um, and that it really is just like setting up the fact it, it's like setting up to, for the fourth book. It's, it's all part, it's all part of the lead up to Voldemort's return. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. Yeah. The prisoner of Azkaban, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but it definitely is very unique in that there isn't, there actually really isn't an antagonist. I mean, Sirius is the antagonist in this book, and the Grim is the antagonist of Harry's biggest fear. And I guess the Dementors are are really like what this is, what Harry really has to fight in this book as well. But it's really not a Voldemort book at all. Um, we think that 
I mean, we're, we have this fear of Voldemort that's persisting throughout the year, of course, because we're afraid of Sirius and Sirius broke out to kill Harry because he thinks that people say this, that Sirius is um, trying to, to bring Voldemort back to life or whatever. Um, but really, like he's Voldemort doesn't play a role in this book at all. And there's really it's actually, I think, well, maybe this isn't accurate to say, but it's the least scary in some ways because, well, nobody dies in this book, unlike in the first two. I mean, I guess in Chamber of Secrets, the only death is Myrtle, and that's not, um, you know, live. But, um, yeah, I, I almost feel like the, the Prisoner of Azkaban has, it's almost one of the most PG books. The, the Dementors are very scary, obviously, but that's about it. There's some creepy elements, for sure, um, but... It's definitely, I would agree with you that I think it's interesting when we look at the the choices of the movie directors that this is where <laughs> it starts to take a dark turn. And it's like, it's, it doesn't really fit with like the actual themes of the books. Like, yes, there's some dark themes here, but there have been dark themes all along. And actually some of them have been darker. Like the second book is much darker than the third book. Well, it's Alice, it's very important that you realize that what... Alfonso Cuaron did was he took these children's books and he made them dark because he saw the artistic side and the the dark and creepy nature of these books. I don't know if you know that, but he really he really changed the tone of the Harry Potter series. And in his third in the third movie, he really he made it clear what the tone of this movie was. And it's dark. <laughs> Thank you so much for that reminder, Martha. Um Oh, and yeah, one I last, never actually one thought last, about it that way. Yeah, one last quick reminder. Books are different from movies as well. I just want to make sure Very you know that. As well. Thank you. I had actually <laughs> forgotten that for a moment there, too. Oh, yeah. Well, no problem. I'm glad I could remind you. You've taught me a lot so far. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but I, th- I do think it's interesting because I guess, like, the there are some really dark elements of Prisoner of Azkaban, but Voldemort's absence is very stark, I guess. Yeah, and I do think it's highly inaccurate to say the third book is when the series starts to get dark. Like, no, the series always had an element of that to it uh, from the very first book. Yeah, that's very true. Because Yeah, you're totally right. Like, there's a very dark overtone to both the first two books, especially the second one, like you said. But even in the first one, I mean, the Boy Who Lived chapter is the very first chapter, and it's got a very creepy mysterious undertone uh, from the very beginning so yeah yeah. okay you had Voldemort possessing a professor in the castle like that's (laughs) extremely dark yes agreed and we have people dropping dead left and right or being petrified left and right that's also very dark yeah anyway um so before we move on to Voldemort and Goblet of Fire, where the, the majority of or where the rest of our conversation will take place, um, we are going to take a quick break to talk about a sponsor for today's episode. Um, and that sponsor is Bombas. Bombas makes the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. Yeah, they've literally rethought every little detail of the socks that we wear to make them way more comfortable. Um, I wear my Bombas socks every day, and they're by far my favorite socks. Um, I actually just wore them on a hike this past week, and they were so great for that. Um, they, The way that the, the socks that I was wearing there were made, they have like a little bit higher um, edge to them so that they don't ride down at all, and I didn't get any blisters, and they were perfect for the hike. Um, but anyways, they really are just perfect socks, and uh, they have all these different adorable patterns and different styles, and I always feel really stylish whenever I wear Bombas. 
Yeah, I agree. I wear them for hiking a lot this summer and they're really comfortable and they don't ride down at all, which I really like. Um, But they even do more than just keeping feet cozy. They also help give back to the most vulnerable members of our community. For every pair of socks that you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 34 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of more than 3,000 giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever. To those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes, which is a small comfort that's especially important right now. So give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash real weird. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash real weird for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash real weird. And that brings us right back into the episode. I do feel like um, even though Voldemort is shadow and vapor, um, we could have at least given Wormtail a pair of socks for all this work that he's going to be doing for Voldemort in Goblet of Fire. He, he would have benefited from at least having comfortable feet. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and also, though, Voldemort is about to return to a body. So I think he would probably like the socks as a gift to becoming coming back to his body. And I think that actually the character that we're going to talk about in the fourth book that would we deserve the socks the most would be Frank Bryce. I thought you were going to say Winky. Oh, well, of course. Well, Winky Winky doesn't want clothes, but um, she, Dobby would love them. That's true. Dobby would love some socks, miss. <laughs> Thank you, Dobby. I'm, I, I know. I'm aware. Winky doesn't want socks, miss. Winky was starting to sound a bit like Moaning Myrtle. <laughs> yeah, well, I was trying to do hiccups instead of crying, but I don't know. I was <laughs> Winky, Winky isn't wanting socks, miss. Is that better? <laughs> I thought that was Dobby speaking for Winky. No, no, Dobby would be, oh, Winky isn't wanting socks, miss. <laughs> okay, anyway. So, um, Voldemort and Goblet of Fire. It's interesting because this is the first book where Harry's going to start having visions of Voldemort, um, and his scar is really going to start prickling all the time. Um, he has had pain in his scar in the first three books, like in various moments, but really only really when Voldemort's near. Um, so, once we get into the fourth book, Harry starts to have a couple dreams. Um, well, they're not dreams um, per se, but uh, visions of Voldemort and um, his scar hurting in association with those things. So, or those those uh, visions. So, the first one is the first chapter of Goblet of Fire, and we've talked about this scene, the Riddle House, being one of I think both of our favorite chapters. Is that right? Is that accurate to say you like this chapter as well? Well, I, I really like what it does. I don't. I'm, I'm assuming you don't also love the content of it. Oh, I love the content of it. It's so fun. And you love watching just, poor old Frank Bryce no, crumpling to the floor. No, it's depressing. I completely agree that it, the the content of it is not my favorite, but I think it's really well written and it's a yeah. very interesting um story. So I I like the like sort of short story nature of this chapter, similar to the boy who lived. Um, and like Spinner's End kind of is another one to compare it to, I guess. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, in this chapter, um, it's told sort of from Frank's perspective, so it's interesting to see Voldemort, well, we don't really see Voldemort until the very end, but to experience Voldemort from Frank's limited perspective, um, we hear Voldemort's voice, and this is where, like, we really, this fourth book is really where we start to get a much better insight into who Voldemort is, like, how he talks to his servants and stuff. He really, in this scene especially, is just, like, 
being such a bully to Voldemort and just like bossing him around and <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, did, did I say to Voldemort? You did. I'm pretty sure I did that earlier in the show when I meant to say Dumbledore. I always mix up those two, so I don't know what, what it is about the name Voldemort, but I guess I'm just trying not to be fearful. Right, exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, Voldemort is a big uh, bully to Wormtail, just bossing him around and like making fun of everything Wormtail says. Like, um, like I like when um, Wormtail says like it, it could be done without Harry Potter. Then Voldemort, um, I could, I could use another wizard. That is true. <laughs> and so you volunteer to go and fetch me a substitute? I wonder. <laughs> Perhaps the task of nursing me has become wearisome for you, Wormtail. Could this suggestion of abandoning the plan be nothing more than an attempt to desert me? He's so, like, first of all, he sees right through Wormtail. <laughs> um, speaking of, like, you know, reading people's minds, he's very good at knowing what Wormtail... That's, it's not really a matter of reading his mind. It's more of, like, picking up on kind of maybe nonverbal cues or, like, just kind of knowing who Wormtail is and what his inclinations are. Um, but there's that. And second of all, he's just so, like, he he can't just, like, say it in a normal tone. He's, like, always mocking him. Always. Yes. <laughs> always mocking him. And then also, we've talked about this before, always speaking in the most, like, antiquated way. Like, I know that he was dead for the last 13 years. Not dead, but, you know dormant for the last 13 years but he seems to have lost completely all sense of how normal people talk because he, like if your devotion is nothing more than cowardice <laughs> like I'm trying to like I'm, I haven't found like the lines that are especially like David sounding but the same thing where the, the like you sound like Lucius like it's just <laughs> I just feel like he talks in such a super villain way, which fits him, I guess. I think what Voldemort did is when he wanted to become a super villain, he went out and he did a lot of research on how super villains talk, and then he adopted all of those speech patterns. <laughs> yeah, I think that's accurate. <laughs> Your, when he goes, how am I to survive without you when I need feeding every few hours? Who is to milk Nagini? Yeah, why wouldn't he just say, who will milk Nagini? Or like, <laughs> who is to milk Nagini? <laughs> oh, Voldemort. Like, just a big nerd, the way he talks. <laughs> and he loves it, though. He loves talking like that. I am no stronger, and a few days alone would be enough to rob me of the little health I have regained under your clumsy care. Silence! <laughs> <laughs> he is he i do feel like he brings in a lot of alliteration too yeah clumsy care he's yeah. quite a, he's quite the poet <laughs> he is he's a wordsmith he chooses his words very carefully i only wish that i could do it myself but in my present condition come wormtail one more death and our path to harry potter is clear <laughs> <laughs> Wormtail, I need somebody with brains, somebody whose loyalty has never wavered, and you unfortunately fulfill neither requirement. <laughs> Cracks me up. I need somebody with brains. <laughs> I know that's what I mean. Like literally, everything he says is like so mocking of of Wormtail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Wormtail's just like pouting, like I I found you. <laughs> It's kind of crazy how fast Wormtail found him. 
Yeah, it is crazy. Um, I guess it's he... In a matter of, like, two weeks. Well, he used his little friends, the rats. True. Um, <laughs> but, like, that, that really was very quick turnaround from the end of the third book to the beginning of the fourth book. Because at this point, it's, like, the middle of the summer. And we know that the Hogwarts school year goes kind of long. So... I think, like, this has literally been a matter of a couple of weeks at this point. I think it's been a little over a month because it's not actually that close to the middle of the summer. It's not as close to the middle of the summer as you think because it's after Harry's birthday. Um, It's like a oh, week right. after okay. Harry's birthday. I always think it's before Harry's birthday, but it's not. I'm, us- I'm usually used to it, the book starting before Harry's birthday. So um, I think that was, you're right. I I was off on that. Yeah, so it's probably been about six weeks, actually. It's a little bit later than I always think that it is, but still, it's pretty pretty impressive. It also just cracks me up the story of how, how Wormtail found Bertha Jorkins, that he was, like, hanging out in a pub, <laughs> and Bertha Jorkins was, like, recognized him. <laughs> it's honestly so creepy, too, though, because I do feel like that's, I mean, I've, like everybody, I've been watching kind of a lot of random, like, true crime documentaries and stuff, and I just always feel like, that's kind of like a thing like the you know they just random stranger that you meet in a bar then like ends up killing you well it's not a random stranger it's an old school friend i guess <laughs> yeah so uh yeah i guess i guess so but yeah i agree it's creepy to think that maybe bertha was like interested in wormtail and he was like come back to my uh, place i don't think it was that i think it was more of she was shocked to see him well and she was nosy we know that about her she was very nosy, nasty uh, nosy woman. Right. Um, so this conversation, I mean, I think it doesn't really do that much. The biggest thing is that we get the mention of the faithful servant um, who's back at Hogwarts. It's a very obviously interesting plot device of Harry hearing this dream or, you know, he was witnessing this in his head. Um, and we know that we get hints about things that are going to happen at Hogwarts this year and that Harry's going to be used, um, that kind of thing. And that Bertha was murdered by Voldemort and stuff like that. But it's, it's not, um, I guess nothing that big happens other than sadly the death of Frank Bryce. Yeah. Come on. We got to pay him respect. Ooh, Nagini has interesting news. Wormtail. <laughs> Indeed, indeed, yes. According to Nagini, there is an old muggle standing right outside this room, listening to every word we say. And then, yeah, poor Frank Bryce, he's just done for. Invite him inside, Wormtail. Where are your manners? You're depressing me. <laughs> it's really depressing. Well, if you really want to get sad, let's talk about when Frank comes up with his great cover story that his wife is waiting for him. Yeah, okay, again, please. It's enough. I, so I can't handle it. You have no wife. <sighs> yeah, this, I do feel really bad for Frank Bryce. Poor random casualty. Um, I do want to say, like, the other thing notable about this chapter is the fact that we get the backstory on the actual Riddle House. And yes. I, I think that's always been very, that was always very interesting to me because like you see the name Tom Riddle and, and it was always kind of like hard to piece together exactly who these people were because you know that Tom Riddle that we know is still alive. Um, so it's very, it's kind of confusing and I, I kind of enjoy the the element of mystery, even though you, there's pieces, you know. Yes, I I remember the same 
uh, dilemma of like trying to figure out who Tom Riddle is, which Tom Riddle is here because we see like the well, like in the graveyard, we see the grave of Tom Riddle, and then we have at the beginning of this chapter the the story of the riddles and the um how they were how they were murdered. And yeah, I think it's like we don't know the whole backstory. We know that Tom Riddle was named after his muggle father. That's revealed in the Chamber of Secrets, but we don't know all the details. So I, I remember also feeling a little bit confused when I read this the first time of which Tom Riddle was this talking about. And I, I think I like was like, oh, was this like, did he fake his own death or something? Or it didn't really make sense. <laughs> well, and just like the fact that we see um, that clearly this was a muggle or this was a wizard murder. Um, you can tell based on the way it's described. So you, you know that it was Voldemort that did it, but it's just, it's always a little bit like, I just remember feeling a little bit like, how does this all fit together? Right. Um. So the next like big scene in Goblet of Fire, we have a lot of like foreshadowing throughout the um, book of the Dark Mark and people like, you know, rumblings of Voldemort rising to power and that kind of thing. Um, At the Quidditch World Cup, uh, or I guess right after the Quidditch World Cup, we have the whole riot led by the um, people in masks and then ending with the Dark Mark being shot into the sky. Um, so we get the first explanation of what the Dark Mark was. We get the first explanation of who Death Eaters were. Um, that We get that name for the first time. And then also we get um, to know Crouch a little bit more because this is going to be where Winky is found in the bushes um, and Barty Crouch Sr., um, it shows like just how much he hates um, the dark arts and being accused or being accused by proxy of being involved. And then um, we also get to see a scene where we where we actually saw Barty Crouch Jr. Uh, running away from the scene, shooting the dark mark into the sky and then looking straight at the camera. <laughs> right we do see that scene um alice i don't think you actually did your homework for this episode because it sounds like you might have just watched the movie instead of actually reading the text <laughs> and then and we also see him doing his little tongue thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah shout out to david tennant not an answer in the real weird family feud not bitter, barty though. crouch Junior. Junior. Well, <laughs> I think I had forgotten in the Family Feud that it's actually Karkaroff who says that. Oh, right. <laughs> he's, na- he's naming names and he's like, Severus Snape, wait, Barty Crouch. Junior. <laughs> <laughs> Such a mic drop moment. Yeah. Okay. But no, we do not actually see Barty Crouch. And this episode is not about Barty Crouch Jr. Um, But it is important to talk about the Dark Mark, what it means, and the Death Eaters themselves. Yeah, so the Death Eaters, first of all, I was kind of wondering, do you think Voldemort came up with that name? Or what do you think that's about? I think it has to have been Voldemort. I mean, it's very consistent with Voldemort's whole mission of wanting to defeat death. Um, So I think, like, yeah, <laughs> it's a horrible name. Like, we're the Death Eaters. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird because it's like, I don't know. It, it's, it's always kind of grossed me out. Agreed. It's like, yum, yummy, we eat death. <laughs> um and then second of all i was just wondering what your thoughts on the the dark mark were um basically i always just interpreted the dark mark as like they want to brag or take credit for these things um so it's basically just like showboating 
Well, I mean, there's a couple different ways to see it. And it, it's interesting that Hermione is like our first person who explains what it is because she doesn't really get it. Um, she says it's, you know, whose sign. Um, and then later on, she like she's like being a big know-it-all, classic Hermione, explaining to Harry like she's like, I told you, Harry, it's you know who's Mark. And and she's like, I read about it in The Rise and the Fall of the Dark Arts. Um, and then um Mr. Weasley is the one who really explains what it was. And I think it's interesting. I mean, it's a very creepy image to have him describe, like, that you would come home and find the dark mark hovering over your house. Because it would basically be a sign that whoever's inside the building was killed um, by the Death Eaters. So, I mean, I feel like it's almost like... I think that that's a parallel would be like a serial killer who has a signature like Mark or something that they leave. I don't know if that's actually something that happens that often um, with, with murderers, but um, it's kind of like, I don't know, the Death Eaters wanting to take credit or somehow, but also really to incite fear in people because that's a big part of their movement, I guess. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. That's definitely like, they really enjoy the fear mongering aspect of it. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that there's necessarily like a big backstory behind it, but it's just always been, I guess it's kind of a thing that happens a lot in comic books too, where there's like the villain leaves like their calling card. Right. Well, what's surprising too is that nobody until the second rise of Voldemort, people don't seem to be that aware of what the dark mark on people's arms is like the the death eaters tattoos. Um, and it's confusing because they're both called the dark mark. Um, whereas I, I kind of always think of the tattoo first with the dark mark, even though we first see it, um, in the air above the, um, Quidditch world cup. But yeah, it's interesting because like when we see the scene with Snape and Karkaroff later in this book and Harry explains it to Sirius, Sirius is like, I have no idea what that's about. Like, so I'm just kind of surprised that that's not more of a, I mean, did the, the death eaters have that good of makeup to cover up the tattoo or something? Well, I guess they could probably use magic maybe to hide it. Um, that seems like something that Voldemort would have like prevented in the way that it's set up or something. That's true. But you'd also think he would make it so it was like makeup would wash off immediately too. Right. That's true. <laughs> but like, it's surprising that like Lucius's dark mark isn't enough of a giveaway. Well, I think people, I mean, they, they knew that he was involved, right? But then he denounced yeah. it or did they... Or did they legitimately think he never was a Darth, uh, a Death Eater? I, I think he claimed that he was under the Imperious curse. I mean, it's confusing what everybody what, what everybody's each done. Right. But I, True. I I just feel like it's weird that people don't seem to be more aware of the Dark Mark because it does seem like such an incriminating thing. Like for Draco, like that Draco's been branded with the Dark Mark. Like that's like proof to Harry. I mean, I guess Harry sees it differently than other people. But I guess it's just surprising that it's not as well known yeah, of a thing in think- the post. Right, you'd think that would be definitely like something that would they would try to publicize. Like, okay, right. these Death Eaters all have tattoos, so you can easily identify them. Exactly. Yeah. So, anyway, this dark mark scene is important. Obviously, um, we have the the scene with Barty Crouch Senior being very, very like upset that Winky's there, and he gets really mad at Amos Diggory because Amos like sort of suggests that it could be Harry, it could be Winky, and Crouch says, you've come very close to accusing the two people most, or two people least likely to conjure the mark, Harry Potter and myself. So it's important uh, seeing how how uh, much Barty Crouch Sr. wants to distance himself from that. 
Right. And and obviously when you do the reread, it looks kind of suspicious to be like, I'm the last person you could ever suspect. Right. Yeah. I, I haven't got a racist bone in my body. Like that kind of, that's kind of the the tone of that. Um Exactly. But yeah, I think that's this scene is really eerie um, when you read it um, the first time, especially like it just feels very much. Well, it's 140 pages into the book, but still it does feel like something is really going to happen this book <laughs> uh, and it's going to be a really like Voldemort is probably on his way back. It's even more con- confirmation than in the Rebel House chapter. I guess if you're reading it really closely, you c- probably could connect the dots that the the most faithful servant that was referenced in the Riddle House chapter is probably the one who set off the dark mark in this chapter. Yeah, I think so, but I guess I didn't. I don't know that I really necessarily thought that right away. I, I, I might have thought like I don't remember what my theories were, but like it might be possible that people could think that like it was Wormtail or that I don't know. Yeah, it's just interesting because there's kind of it's kind of a big theme in Goblet of Fire book um, that Voldemort has to kind of make the decision of which Death Eaters to forgive or to show mercy to. Um, it's not really mercy, but like the ones who renounced him versus the ones who stayed faithful to him. Like it can, can he really survive without the faith of the people who denounced him after he left uh, or after, after he went away? Um, the, the motivations of Barty Crouch Jr. to set off the mark here is because he's mad at Lucius and the others who are under the masks at the Quidditch World Cup, that they're like so open and brazen about this and not like actually looking to, to bring Voldemort back to power. That's why I was mad too. Yeah, well, Barty Crouch Jr. is like really mad at them, and he like wants to teach them a lesson, like scare them off, scare them off, pretty much. Yeah, it is kind of funny because um, it, it's interesting that like I don't know, it's just interesting that how the death, how the different Death Eaters um, interact with Voldemort. Like Barty Crouch Jr. really is another level of maniac with this yes he's definitely the definition of a fanatic um but yeah i think that i don't know um it's it's interesting we'll talk about it more when we get to the graveyard i guess the kind of different categories of death eaters um but throughout the rest of this book like we have i mean this is a very long book and that's big probably one of our biggest criticisms of the goblet of fire book is it does drag um it's a little bit longer than i think it needs to be um in places but for almost 400 pages actually there's really not that many mentions of Voldemort (laughs) obviously we have the we have the fear of like who put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire and it's probably something connected to Voldemort obviously Sirius is the first one to really suggest that um but it's not like I I guess Voldemort doesn't really play a huge role um in in much of the stuff obviously he's out there um plotting with with Wormtail and with Barty Crouch Jr. what what he's going to do after this um dark mark scene is he's going to together with wormtail rescue barty crouch jr from his father's house and put crouch senior under the imperious curse um and then um to get to get mad eye moody um and get get that all worked out so voldemort's doing some stuff behind the scenes but we don't see him again we don't see a mention of him really again until the scene that harry witnesses of karkaroff talking to snape um saying that his dark mark is growing stronger yeah, it is interesting because we have this whole Triwizard Tournament plot going on, and it's all kind of—it honestly is kind of a big smokescreen for yes <laughs> for everyone because like that's what we kind of are led to believe this book is about. Um, 
And in some ways it is, but it really is more about the fact that Voldemort is going to return. Um, And then same thing with the, the way that they orchestrate the tournament and the way that Voldemort gets involved kind of, uh, and with Barty Crouch Jr. getting involved and then uh, finally turning the whole, turning the cup into uh, into a port key. It, it all is a big smokescreen to deter from the fact that Voldemort is plotting his return. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because it's a smokescreen like created by the author as well as a smokescreen created by Barty Crouch Jr. and Voldemort and Wormtail, I guess, to some extent. Like, it's it's being used by the characters to cover up for what they're doing, but it's also a, a plot device, I guess, mm-hmm. too, because the readers are kind of kept in the dark of what's really happening. And I don't know. I mean, I like the Goblet of Fire book, and I think there's some really interesting things that happen um, in it, but... I kind of get frustrated a little bit with how much detail is given just because it is almost the, it is the second longest book in the whole series. Um, second only to Goblet of or second only to Order of the Phoenix. And it doesn't need to be that long uh, because just there's so much detail given to like the Yule <laughs> Ball and to the, each of the tasks when really like, I mean, I'm not saying like that I want less Harry Potter content, but just feel like this book drags more than it needs to consider. I mean, our biggest criticism always has been 200 pages before they get to Hogwarts. That's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, you know what What probably could have been taken out is the Quidditch World Cup. And I'm sorry, I know that that's fun world building, um, but there's a lot of time that goes into that. Right. It's, it's like chapter on chapter on chapter. And I get that this whole dark mark part is, is exciting, but that could have probably happened somewhere else as well well or we just didn't need 10 chapters (laughs) before but anyway anyway that's not what we're here to talk about what we're here to talk about is the scene with Karkaroff because Karkaroff is a really interesting character even though he's he's annoying and not really that likable he is interesting as the death eater that is too cowardly to return to Voldemort um that's how Voldemort describes him in the graveyard but that's this scene with uh Karkaroff whispering to Snape about how it's growing stronger it's never been this clear and Snape put it away (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but yeah it's very very interesting I guess yeah definitely some it's more foreshadowing that there's something else going on behind the scenes here and that it's not all um rosy inter-school competition Right. Um, but yeah, Harry tries to explain that scene to to Sirius later, and Sirius is like, "I have no idea what that's about." Which is, again, <laughs> right. So definitely, the Death Eaters did a good job of keeping the fact that they all have the same giant tattoo a secret. Right. I mean, I guess it was that faded, but still, that <laughs> just seems strange to me. Yeah, I agree. Um. So then the next uh, big scene, and this is bigger than the Karkaroff thing, is when um, Harry has his second vision. And it's not a dream, even though he was asleep. And this is he falls asleep in Transfiguration. Um, quite understandable. Not, not really a dream. It's not really a memory. <laughs> it's the best I've got. <laughs> but yeah, so this is the dream that he has. And it's a very short um, vision that he has. But basically, Voldemort gets a letter an owl and the, he then tells Wormtail that his blunder did not ruin everything and that he has to tell Nagini that you won't be eating Wormtail after all. 
Yeah, this is after Barty Crouch uh, Sr. escaped and made his way to Hogwarts, but luckily Barty Crouch Jr. was able to kill his father. Luckily. (laughs) Luckily. And turn him into a bone. (laughs) Master Barty, what is you saying? Okay, don't depress me again. (laughs) But yeah, so basically this is Harry's second, like, vision into Voldemort's mind, and what's most important is that this is going to be the device that allows Harry to go into Dumbledore's office and see these visions in the pensive, Um, and just to jump ahead a little bit, what Dumbledore explains to Harry is basically that he thinks that that, uh, Harry's scar hurts both when Voldemort is near him and when Voldemort is feeling hatred. Um, He doesn't say strong emotion here, he says hatred. Um, But yeah, that's that's an important thing. This this vision is really not that it doesn't actually help at all. I guess it's just um, more of a device to get Harry into into Dumbledore's office. Yeah. Um, So before Harry actually has that conversation with Dumbledore, he does go into the pensive um, being a big snoop. And (laughs) the the three memories that he sees are all very important because. They lead, they're they're all having to do with his foreshadowing of Voldemort coming back. Uh, just to dive quickly into each of them. The first one is Karkaroff naming Death Eaters. And the ones that he says, Dolohov, Rosier, Travers, Mulsiver, Rookwood, and Snape. Um, he doesn't say Barty Crouch, Junior. <laughs> That's just in the movie. Um, but the only one who's actually who actually matters is Rookwood. Um, Dolohov and Travers and Mulsiver are already in Azkaban and then Rosier is dead um, and then Snape has been cleared so right. and the, um, the fact that he says Snape is kind of interesting too because then we're going to get some suspicion cast on Snape yet again right for the first time ever we'll be a little bit suspicious of Snape it's a <laughs> new it's a new thing that we decided to do here exactly <laughs> um, and then the second memory is pretty quick. Again, it's just Ludo Bagman being accused of being a Death Eater, but that was just him being a dummy. And um, that was just then, being a red herring kind of for us, I think. True, that too. And then the third memory is probably the most important, and this is the trial of Bellatrix, Rodolphus, Rabaston, and Crouch Jr. Um, one thing that I kind of always forget, and I guess I remember it um, like when I think about it, but it just always kind of takes me off guard when I remember that this actually Hello, takes place Father. at... <laughs> Hello, father. <laughs> okay, sorry, you caught me off guard there. No, but what I always forget is that this actually takes place after um, the death of the Potters and after Voldemort's fall. So um, it's only a few weeks after, but I guess the Lestranges wanted to try to bring Voldemort back to power by attacking the Longbottoms. Um, kind of interesting. I wonder, part of me wonders whether this could have had to do with them thinking that the prophecy was about Neville, but probably not. Yeah, I don't know about that either. I kind of feel like I've never really entertained that thought before, but I feel like they were more, like you said, trying to bring Voldemort back to power um, or just kind of like trying to continue to carry out his mission or something. Yeah, I think I think so, because Bellatrix makes this speech at the end here. (laughs) The Dark Lord will rise again, Crouch. Throw us into Azkaban. We will wait. He will rise again. Will come for us. He will reward us beyond any of his other supporters. Yeah, so you can see definitely through this scene why Voldemort kind of why Bellatrix really is one of his most devoted servants and also same with uh barty crouch jr um yeah that they did not turn their back on him and they did not deny him or deny the fact that they had been death eaters they 
really were more committed to the cause than some of these other Death Eaters. Right. Um, and important to note here, too, that Barty Crouch Jr. in the book is very pretending like he is completely hoodwinked and he's screaming at Crouch, I'm your son. And he he's begging his mother um, to protect him. And he seems like I remember reading this that I was definitely convinced that he was not actually part of this. Um, so it's interesting choice on the director's part that he is very clearly evil in this movie scene. <laughs> Yeah, hello, father. Hello, um, father. <laughs> but also, I mean, I guess, honestly, that in the movie, it does, it fits more with what I was actually saying about how he didn't turn his back on Voldemort, whereas this, he kind of actually does. I mean, he yeah. does kind of, he he does kind of, like, try to get out of going to Azkaban, and obviously he gets out of Azkaban at, later on, but he tries tries to get out of it, and he's trying everything, including denying Voldemort. Yeah, that's a good point, because yeah, maybe that's why the director chose to make him so blatantly evil in the movie, because it does seem weird that Voldemort would consider him his most, most faithful servant when he was pretending to be, like, innocent in this scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that... It's just important to see the different memories of the Death Eaters and to see what's what's on Dumbledore's mind, um, because those are the three memories that Harry gets to see, but they're the memories that Dumbledore has obviously been thinking about. Um, and after the pensive memories, we have the conversation about Harry's scar hurting, and finally Dumbledore does compare the, the current times to the years of Voldemort's first rise to power, so he mentions that there were many disappearances in those years, and he mentions um, Bertha Jorkin's uh, disappearance, Barty Crouch Sr.'s disappearance, and then he also says um, Frank Bryce, um, who he says that the Ministry does not care about, but Harry, but Dumbledore is suspicious that it's connected. Yeah, I like how Dumbledore just is like I guess maybe this is what he does with all his time, just, like, read yeah. all the news out there. Like, uh, not to be, like, not to be too, like, I guess, I don't know, crass, but, like, there's a ton of murders all the time in the news, and so it's kind of random that Dumbledore really honed in on this one, but maybe he has, like, sort of, like, a Google alert turned on in his, <laughs> somehow, where he's able to see, like, okay, when anytime there's, like, a death that seems like the person just like they, they're not sure what the cause of death is because they seem otherwise totally healthy other than that they're dead. Yeah. Um, well, I'm just surprised that the death, that the ministry doesn't care at all about this because it literally is the person who lives on the riddles property. Like I, this, this is just point uh, proof to the idea that nobody really knows who uh, <laughs> Lord Voldemort's real identity is, I guess. But I guess it's just so strange that like, it's very obvious that this is connected because yeah, that's this true. This is the person who was accused of killing the Riddles originally, and he lives on the property of Tom Riddle's father. So I just that feel like it's, I can see why Dumbledore is sure that it's connected, at least. Yeah, and also, like, I don't know, you'd think that it's not that novel of a concept to learn as much as you can about whatever enemy or whatever cr- criminal you're trying to track down. Uh, so it is, seems like a huge oversight that the ministry doesn't seem to have more intel on who Voldemort is as a person and where he comes from. Right. And it's just, I guess, more proof to the idea that the ministry just doesn't care and doesn't think that they're, that Voldemort's an imminent threat anymore, I guess. So, yeah. So, yeah, the, after that pensive scene, Dumbledore's office scene, um, we don't really get much more from from Voldemort until the actual graveyard. Um, and obviously this, is, this scene is extremely important um, to, to look at. 
in flesh, blood, and bone, um, he's not. <laughs> Voldemort doesn't really do anything with just Wormtail reciting the creepy chant of <laughs> this spell, and then the little baby fetus Voldemort or Embermort, whatever we call him, um, is poured into the cauldron with all of this other stuff. And <laughs> Harry's begging that it's that it's gone wrong. It's drowned. Please let it be dead. But then, yeah, we have, that's very creepy. Me. Robe me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, we can question what what Voldemort was wearing or what it, not wearing. What exactly went on there. Um, but yeah, this this scene. I mean, okay, maybe this is really if if this is what if if this scene is where people said this is where the series takes a dark turn. I would be okay with that. Right. Um, definitely. Because this is a lot darker than anything that happens in the third book. Yeah, well, I mean, the Riddle House scene is where the series takes a dark turn, I think. I mean, we have, I guess you could maybe say Professor Trelawney's prediction at the end of the third book, but that all that stuff, it ends positively. Like, Sirius gets away, Buckbeak survives. Like, it, we're still very much sunshine and rainbows. Harry defeats the Dementors, even though it's scary. Like, it ends positively. When we start the fourth book, it's very clear that the book has turned. This is the turning point. I don't think the third book is, but maybe if we'd had Alfonso direct this movie, it would have been okay. Yeah, honestly, like I was just going to say, if, if if Alfonso had made the decisions he made on this movie rather than on the third movie, that might have made more sense. But As long as we didn't have to have the frog choir or the, the, the talking heads. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so this... That chapter, Flesh, Blood, and Bone, doesn't really have that much Voldemort content. Uh, but the next chapter, The Death Eaters, is very important because it's pretty much this entire chapter is just Voldemort talking. Um, so he's he's been really cooped up all these years. He's really excited for a platform to finally be able to, to talk at people. Yeah, he's ready to deliver some long lectures and to really... Um, it's kind of like, you know, people who you start getting mad at someone and over one little thing. And then it's like every grievance that you've had over your whole life starts getting aired. That's kind of like what Voldemort does to the death eaters here. Yeah, true. Um, so the description of Voldemort really quick uh, is very creepy. It says his hands were like large pale spiders. His long white fingers caressed his own chest. Okay, that's weird. He's like giving himself a little chest massage. Well, I think he's just like kind of trying to realize that he has a body now. Yeah. It's weird that the, the word caress is there. Um, his arms, his face, or he was, so I guess his white fingers are caressing his chest, his arms, and his face. Um, the red eyes whose pupils were slits like a, like a cat's gleamed still more brightly through the darkness. So are his, are his irises red or are the whites of his eyes red? Or are the pupils red? I don't think the pupils are red because it says the red eyes. Uh, I, so I mean, I think it makes a distinction between the eyes and the pupils. So I don't think the pupils are what's red. Yeah, that wouldn't even make physical sense because pupils are just holes. But um, the okay, so I, I think the irises are red. You well, I mean, I think that's what most people think, but it's just weird. Like I do think it could be really creepy for it actually just to be like very red whites of his eyes. Well, yeah, obviously that's not a good look on anyone either, but I just think, like, what color would the irises be then? Would, just, like, like also very... Described? Well, I think it would be just kind of like the pupils. Like, I don't know, maybe... Yeah, just weird... Really... Well, exactly. If the irises were the same color as the pupils, then the pupils wouldn't really look like slits. 
Well, I know, but that's what I... Okay, this is... <laughs> My point is that everybody always draws Voldemort, I think, with having red irises and still white, eye, like whites of the eyes. My vision, maybe, I'm thinking now, could be that he just has the slits for pupils and then the entire rest of the eye is red. Yeah, no, I could definitely get on board with that theory. Okay. Well, so anyway, so Voldemort then goes on this whole, well, first of all, he touches um, Wormtail's dark mark to summon the rest of the Death Eaters. And he's also playing little mind games with Wormtail because Wormtail thinks that he's asking Wormtail, or he, he, Wormtail thinks that Voldemort is going to give him a new hand right away or heal his wound at least. But uh, Wormtail just is like, <laughs> uh, Voldemort's like, the other arm, Wormtail. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so then Voldemort does go on a little speech to Harry about how, um, he's standing on the, you stand, Harry Potter, upon the remains of my late father, a muggle and a fool. Yeah, he loves to call people a fool. That is his, like, favorite, uh, favorite Then kill him, you fool! (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so then he keeps going to, he just, like I said, this whole chapter is literally just him talking. His blabs about how, uh, his muggle father, uh, left his mother and returned to his muggle parents, and I vowed to find him. I revenged myself upon him, that fool who gave me his name. <laughs> and he goes, it's all this- starting to click what happened in the Riddle House <laughs> chapter. Listen to me, reliving family history. Why, I'm growing quite sentimental. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, then all the Death Eaters return, and Voldemort has a big speech to them, and he says that he smells guilt. There is a stench of guilt upon the air. (laughs) It's weird that he seems to rely on his scent so much, considering he barely even has a nose. (laughs) He does have a nose. Okay. Um, but yeah, so th- this is where I feel like he gets into his really like old, old fashioned way of speaking. I ask myself, why did this band of wizards never come to the aid of their master to whom they swore eternal loyalty? I just always wonder, too, though, like, what did he expect? Like, how would people know where he was? I think he like he respects the Death Eaters who went to Azkaban for him the most, which is like Bellatrix and uh, Barty Crouch Jr. and stuff. Yeah, and then he just like I think what he expects is that those of them that didn't go to Azkaban would be like actively trying to hunt him down or like find him and help him. Right, which is what Barty Crouch Jr. did. Um, but I guess Barty Crouch Jr. barely even did. Like he only like Voldemort found him really. Marty Crouch Jr. really was very weak. The fact that he was under an imperious curse for like 13 years. Well, Barty Crouch Sr. is a very uh, good wizard, I think. So That's true, I guess. But still. Um, and he was also only like 20. Barty Crouch Jr. Jr. <laughs> um, I think he was like 17 or 18 when he went to Azkaban. And then, That's true. I mean, I guess... He, as he grew older, it was easier for him to fight the Imperius. But you know what's very interesting about that too, though, is that that means he was at Hogwarts the same time as uh, the Potters and Sirius and everyone. I mean, he was a couple of years younger than them. But yeah, that's weird. Um, yeah, so he was like Snape's age, <laughs> like a couple oh. years younger than Snape. I mean, they were in the same house. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. Maybe he was only like 15 or 16, because I do feel like he's described as a teenager when he goes to Azkaban, um, and maybe he wasn't done with Hogwarts or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so 
Voldemort starts to like lecture the Death Eaters even more, and Avery is the one who like flings himself and begs for forgiveness and Voldemort does the Cruciatus curse on him. Get up, Avery. Stand (laughs) up. You ask for forgiveness. I do not forgive. I do not forget. (laughs) Thirteen long years. I want thirteen years repayment before I forgive you. You know that Um, Voldemort is one of those people, if he had a Facebook, he'd be posting a meme every other day about like, I, I might forgive, but I don't forget. Well, that he doesn't forgive either. That's important. <laughs> yeah, true. But like, huh. there's certain times in life when you learn who your true friends are. Right. He's definitely on his high horse about that all the time. Um, but so then Voldemort does give Wormtail the new hand because Lord Voldemort does reward his helpers. <laughs> and then Wormtail goes nuts over it. Yeah, he's like, beautiful. Thank you. Is it as beautiful as your arm, your perfectly normal fine arm that you just cut off? <laughs> Just for no good hand. reason. It's on his whole arm. Okay, but, um, but what's what cracks me up, I forgot to mention this in the Riddle House chapter, is that Voldemort says to Wormtail, like, the task I have in mind for you, many of my followers would give their right hand to perform this task. Because <laughs> <laughs> the task is literally giving your right hand. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, um, then we have him going on to address each Death Eater one by one. And of course, the best one is Lucius, my slippery friend. (laughs) (laughs) I love that one. Yeah. Um, so then he goes on to address, um, the empty spot where the Lestranges should stand, um, as well as... Actually, it's kind of interesting because he doesn't say that his most faithful servant would be there. But I guess his most faithful servant is with the six who are missing at the end. Um, Then we have McNair, then Crab and Goyle, uh, then Knot, and then the six missing Death Eaters. So three are dead, which we know Rosier is one of them um, because he's mentioned. I don't know who the other two are um, because I didn't think that Mulsiver was dead, but maybe, maybe Mulsiver is one. Thought he was one of the ones who was in Azkaban and who returned into the Order of the Phoenix, but maybe they're just two that we're not aware of. Um, and then we have one too cowardly to return. That's Karkaroff. One who has left forever, who's Snape. Um, he thinks. Um, and then one who remains my most faithful servant, and that's of course Crouch Jr. And we don't get a mention of Jugson. I know. I was gonna say so. Jugson must either be in uh, Azkaban still because he doesn't mention all the ones who are in Azkaban. It's always surprising to me that there's literally like six Death Eaters here. <laughs> I know, it's such a small group. I guess only five, plus Crouch Jr. But um, yeah, Jugson's not there. Jugson is either a new recruit, or he was in um, Azkaban and one of the people who escaped. I'm not sure. Or yeah, maybe he's one too coward. Maybe he's the one who was too cowardly to return. No, that is Karkaroff. (laughs) That's definitely Karkaroff. Yeah, I was just thinking maybe Jugson was also too cowardly to return. Or maybe he was just not high profile enough. Why would um, that be? Why would Jugson be too cowardly to return when he literally does return the next year? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, so this speech pretty much ends with Voldemort explaining the whole story of the night that he uh, was, you know, reduced to mere shadow and vapor. And. He does make a big deal of how he can now touch Harry, and he uh, uh, puts his finger to Harry's head, and Harry says that he thought his head would burst with the pain. And he goes on and on about how he was uh, 
less than the meanest ghost. Uh, nevertheless, I was as powerless as the weakest creature alive and without the means to help myself, for I had no body and every spell that might have helped me required the use of a wand. <laughs> yeah. um, so, again, speaking in the most antiquated terms possible. <laughs> right. Uh, so then he just continues. He talks about Quirrell and he talks about um, Quirrell dying and he talks about Wormtail returning to him and Bertha Jorkins and he just continues and just talks and talks. Like I said, this entire chapter is him just talking. Um, we don't really need to go through all the details because I feel like people know them at this point. Well, he hasn't really had, you know, a voice. I mean, I guess he has been able to talk in his half-human form, but this is the first time he's really hearing his his real voice back. I do think it's interesting Voldemort is being creative here, I guess, or like he's thinking ahead in some ways that he never reveals who the faithful servant is. I guess on the off chance that Harry does survive, do you think that's why he never says it, or is it just literally like a narrative device? <laughs> Um, I guess we could say in case Harry returns or, um, yeah, just, I guess he doesn't want to blow up his spot for any reason. Like he probably is still a little bit hesitant if he can trust all of these Death Eaters or not. Yeah, that's probably true too. But I just think it's interesting because, um, yeah, he mentions the faithful servant so many times, but he never says who it is. Um, yeah, so the chapter ends with him saying that, um, he's going to duel Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> and this duel in the Priori and Cantatum chapter obviously is not much. It's literally Harry like kind of fights off the Imperius for a little bit. Um, and then he does Expelliarmus at the same time as Harry as Voldemort does the killing curse. Um, and I mean, good go on Harry. Obviously, he's able to escape. Um, there's, I mean, not that much, uh, I guess, characterization of Voldemort here. Other than that, he is defeated by this and he yells at the death eaters to try to capture him but not to kill him because he he's mine i don't know yeah is there we, much else you want to talk about in this chapter well, we do get to see a little bit of his fatal flaws coming out here because a there's the whole i have to be the one to kill harry and i know that's due to the prophecy and everything but he's very possessive over harry um, whereas, like, if he just let a random Death Eater kill Harry, that Harry probably would have been killed here. Um, so there's that. And then B, just his uh, kind of like, okay, I don't like this analogy because obviously, as everybody knows, we're huge cat people. But he's a little bit like a cat playing with a mouse before he can kill it. Like, he won't let it go. And he has to, like, do all this, like chasing Harry around and like teasing him before they actually get to it and it's like okay if you would just not waste time then right. this probably could be a little bit easier for you yeah exactly like he definitely played enough like that Harry was able to think of a plan I mean Harry didn't know that this was going to work the way it did but I do feel like if, if Voldemort had just caught Harry off guard he probably could have defeated him yeah exactly so, yeah, this, thankfully, Harry's able to escape. Um, and this is, again, like, this book just drags on because Harry escapes Voldemort, and then we still have another three chapters left because we have to get, or two, I guess, yeah, three chapters left uh, because we have to have the whole story of Barty Crouch Jr. and that. Um, so, I mean, that's not, there's not much about Voldemort in the last couple chapters. It's really just um, Barty Crouch's ex explanation of what happened. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I think people remember the most of those details or we've talked about most of it so far. Yep. So Voldemort is now back. Um, it's interesting because for somebody who wasn't really, who, who had to come back, there was plenty to talk about for those books where he wasn't yet back. Right. I guess the last thing we should mention is that we do have the scene of Dumbledore talking to Fudge about this and Fudge says like, you can't seriously believe that you know who is back. Come on, come now, come now. Certainly, Crouch may have believed himself to be acting on you-know-who's orders, but to take the word of a lunatic like that, Dumbledore, because Crouch gives the, or Fudge gives the order for Crouch to be uh, sent to the Dementors, and so he can't be a witness to the fact that Voldemort's back. Right, which is highly frustrating for the reader, because we know the truth, and also for Harry right. and Dumbledore, obviously. Right. And the other so, thing that was sort of important to the whole Voldemort plotline is when Dumbledore has his triumphant gleam, which was also the number one time when we got a billion pieces <laughs> of feedback from people. Number two, I think number two time, the number one time was when we didn't know some horse terminology and <laughs> <laughs> withers, the wither yeah. wings thing. <laughs> yeah, but so the triumphant gleam um, is after Harry's told told Dumbledore about uh, how Voldemort can touch him now. Right, because that is protection that Harry's going to be able to have now that he's not going to be, that if he's killed by, if uh, Voldemort tries to kill Harry again, the only part that's going to die of him is the Horcrux part because he lives on while Voldemort lives on. Right, exactly. So just to be clear on that. Um, but yeah, that's the end of Voldemort in the first four books. He is now back, even if the ministry doesn't believe it. Um, and I, like you said, we did find yeah, he's back. Um, we did find plenty to talk about with him, even though he was not even present, really, for the first four or three books. <laughs> yeah, he was I mean, a shadow and vapor. <laughs> I like how that was never even a joke until this episode. Well, it's a great new joke. <laughs> yeah um well again i think it shows that he's a very dynamic villain um lots to talk about yes agreed um so let's go ahead and uh, rank him um <laughs> we've we've ranked 12 other characters so far um i don't really know how we want to do this <laughs> i know it's so weird to rank the characters because there's so many different pieces of criteria Right. Um, I kind of feel like he's probably, I feel like he's not that, well, he actually is pretty well characterized. We get the whole backstory with Tom Riddle, at least parts of it. And we get a lot of like, like, I would put him at number one personally, but no, I don't think number one, I think maybe number four or number three. I think that too. We have Neville and Draco. I think Neville needs to stay number one. And then I I don't know. Maybe Draco not number two. Maybe Voldemort's number two. Was Voldemort really that... Was Neville that much more interesting than Voldemort? Yes. I don't know about that. He was. All right. Well, we'll put Voldemort at two. It's kind of a weird ranking for him. Well, I think anything we do is going to be kind of weird for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, you can now find those lists of our chapter of our character rankings on our website, realweirdsisters.com. And also very exciting, Alice, I noticed today when I was making the outline for today's episode that on our website, you have now changed the order of our real weirdos. So we have the the Sorcerer's Stone real weirdos going down instead of from Deathly Hallows down. 
Yeah, well, because they used to always be updating it on a weekly basis. And so I figured, you know, if people wanted to, they'd probably be wanting to look at the most recent ones. Um, and so I had the books in reverse order. So you would have the Deathly Hallows at the top. Well, now I just figured we might as well put them into the order of the series instead. Very good thinking. And it's very exciting because um, as I'm looking at this list, I'm reminded we have finished our real weirdos for the first book. Can you believe Ooh. it, Alice? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so, are we gonna move on to our next real weirdo next week, or are we doing something else? Have we decided this? Well, I think we could for the first two books anyway. Maybe we'd take a pause after the second book, but I think, you know, compared to the last books, this was only about half the number of chapters. That's true. Yeah, I think we're gonna do the first two books, and then we'll we'll have a couple things that we want. Some some ideas we've talked about are doing a Harry in one book or just talking about Harry's arc. I know we kind of have done that, but just sort of focusing on one book. And then also the more side characters that we haven't talked about. So such as the Brazilian boa constrictor. Um, next book, we don't actually have any really, really weird, real weirdos. Um, it's all pretty much characters who we could definitely have an episode about. Um, once we get to the third book, we'll have a couple more of those random ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so our next next chapter is going to be, our next character is going to be Dudley. So that's going to be kind of fun. I know. For a second, I was like, well, we've already talked about him, though. Then I realized we, we have not. So we've <laughs> talked about Vernon, yeah. Um, so make sure that you visit that website, realweirdsisters.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash realweirdsisters. Um, on Twitter at realweirdsister. On Instagram at realweirdsisterspod. And, of course, the number one way that you can support the show is by going to patreon.com slash realweirdsisters um, and pledging at a financial level there. Um, again, if you if you've thought that we didn't release enough episodes last month, uh, there is an 11th one available, which is our uh, July patron cast. Um, yeah. And make sure that you are also subscribed in iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. Um, just being subscribed really does help us um, and helps our downloads as well. And also make sure that you've given us a five-star rating and review. Um, we have one this week to read from Craig in Colorado, or I'm assuming CO means Colorado. Um, and the title is Best Podcast Ever. So Craig says, okay, for starters, these two amazing ladies are what inspire me to keep up with Harry Potter. They always make me laugh and smile. I love how they go into detail about the chapters and their opinions on them as well. Clearly, these wonderful ladies know what they're doing. Secondly, they're very relatable. I know from experience that it's better to listen to someone when they're talking to you about things you can relate with and enjoy thoroughly. These two are always talking about things that interest me, and it is always something that I love to hear. Every time I listen to this podcast, I always think, man, it would be awesome to do something as cool as they are. They always know how to make their listeners come back for more. Lastly, they care about the Harry Potter series, and they put so much love, time, and care into this podcast. They always stay relevant to the topic and tell fun little stories that can relate with them. I just want to say thank you to Martha and Alice for bringing me this joy in my life. Well, thank you. That's such a nice review. Um, one of the first times I think that somebody has said that they always stay relevant to the topic. I don't know if that's common common uh, <laughs> praise that we get. Yeah, I don't know if that. I don't know if Craig is saying that after today's show. <laughs> after we had a whole discussion, what what was that big tangent that we had? Selfies. I don't even remember now. Selfies. What? Oh right. <laughs> Yes, we did have a big... I don't know if that was relevant to the topic at all. <laughs> Voldemort, selfie king. That's um, why it came up. Yeah, which was very random. But anyway, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so yes, we uh, thank you for that review. It was very nice, and I always really love seeing um, new reviews. That makes my day when we get them. And we kind of haven't gotten that many recently, so I don't know if people let's I step know, it up. I feel like it's a little sad when I think we we've recorded more podcasts this month than we got five star reviews. It. I think that's actually 100% accurate. I think we got like maybe three this month, and we got we recorded 11 episodes. So <laughs> that's kind of sad for us. <laughs> Return on investment is decreasing. Yeah, that's kind of awkward. Makes me feel kind of bad for us. Like, (laughs) they don't really know what they're doing. People who are listening are like, okay, well, we've all written our reviews by now, so we don't want to write more reviews. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, hopefully that's not the case. Um, But yeah, we will be back next week to talk about Dudley. And until next time, we're the Real Weird Sisters. We're the weird sisters, we're the real weird sisters. All you other weird sisters are fine, but not the vicars. Will the real weird sisters please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.